You may be seated. The book of 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel 25. By the way, the baptism uh, service up the hill will be very short. 20 minutes, 15 minutes. So in case you're going to be in a rush to go somewhere this afternoon, that shouldn't hold you up. Hopefully many can go and encourage the three that are going to be baptized. And those of you that never have seen a water baptism, a submergence under the water in a biblical fulfillment way, you will in about another hour or so. Okay, First Samuel chapter 25, beginning at verse 1. First Samuel 25, verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. And certain man in Maon who had property there at Camo was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which was, which he was shearing in Camo. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was Hosh, that's what the word surly means, Hosh, and mean in his dealings, he was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Camel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you in your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that there is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, they will tell you. Therefore be favorable toward my men, since we come at a festive time. Please keep your servants and your son David, whatever you can find for them. Verse 9. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. Verse 13, David said to his men, Each of you, strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with his with the supplies. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. We're studying the life of David in the Old Testament. Number one, the Old Testament, the Bible tells us, was written for us in the New Testament for our admonition. So we go to the deep well of the Old Testament. We draw out of it things that have application for us in the New Testament. We don't sheep shears. We, uh, we don't, uh, we're not farmers. We don't have goats. And, I mean, we're going to read all ancient historical practices and ways. But even from them, we can learn in the 21st century things from what they did that have practical application for us. We're particularly zooming in on David, the life of David, who becomes a king. He's not yet sitting on the throne, but he has been anointed by Samuel, who was a very important character in the book of 1 Samuel. <clears throat> so we're looking at David from several standpoints. 
He's an ancestor of Jesus, so we're looking at him ancestrally. We're looking at him personally, his own lifestyle. And we're also looking at him typologically, how he's a type of Christ. But this morning, we want to concentrate on David personally. The book of Hebrews, once again, 11 tells us about certain ones, and David's name is mentioned as one whose faith is worthy to be followed. Who are you following in your life? Who are your esteemed individuals? Who do you look up to? Is it a rock star? Is it an athletic star? Is it a Hollywood star? Who is your star? Who are you following? Well, Christ is the ultimate one that we're following. We're told to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of the faith. But we also have others. We have a great cloud of witnesses that we can follow, and David is one of the many ones. Now, what's unique about this chapter is, one of them at least, is that we find a different switch in David's character. If you were here last week, you saw that David intent was to try to be merciful to Saul, who was pursuing him, hounding him unto death, chasing him all over the countryside, finally comes near his presence, and without his knowledge, David was aware, draws near to his very place where he was sleeping, and instead of taking his sword and plunging it through Saul, his enemy against him, he rather just snips off that royal garment and then later shows him that and says, I could not do this to you, Saul. We say, wow, what a man of God. What a gracious man. And he says, how can I do this? How can I slay? How can I lay a, a hand on the Lord's anointed? But now in the 25th chapter, we see another David almost. Like I said last week, we not only learned from David's faith, but we learn from David's flaws. And that applies to all those who we are supposed to follow in the sense of observing them, learning from them. When Israel went through the wilderness, in the many temptations and trials they had in the wilderness, the book of 1 Corinthians 10 tells us about them, and it says that they are examples unto us upon whom the end of the ages has come. So what then can we learn from David? Sometimes there are things about David that are admirable. Sometimes there are things about David that are less than proper. And we say, wow, that's a lesson that I need to learn, that I not fall into the same thing that David did. And David does that right here. How then can we explain David's behavior? Let's get the picture here again. David's men are on a mission with, with David, their leader, They're hungry. They're desperate for food. They have been watching over the flock of Nabals. They have been very good to the, uh, to the shepherds. They have protected them from, from enemies and pirates and whoever would come around and, uh, mess with them, so to speak. And therefore, David feels like, well, we did him a favor. Let's ask him to do us a favor. So he sends ten men to go to Nabal. And ask him politely with a wonderful greeting, and he uses the expression, long life to you, good health to you, and your household, and good health to all that is yours. And then he reminds, the ten uh, reminding Nabal about how good the servants were, and how they protected the sheep of his, and so on. And then he gets this harsh, nasty reaction from Nabal. 
I mean, Nabal's a wealthy man, number one. This happened to be a time of the sh- a season where the sheep were being sheared, which is a festive time when he would collect numerous helpers to help with the flock and shearing them. And at the same time, there would be abundance of food for all and more. So it was prime time for David to budge in and say, could you help us out? We helped you out. Would you mind giving us some food for, for me and our hungry men? And tell, greet him in the name of David. Well, Nabal is hostile. Who is David? I don't know him. Who could he be? There are a lot of ones that have broken away from their masters. He's a renegade of some kind. Get out of here, basically. The word comes back to David. He's infuriated. He, he is angry. He is looking for revenge. You mean he wouldn't accept the offer? He wouldn't allow us to have some of the food that he has an abundance of? What contributed to David's behavior? I want to look at that with you a little bit, maybe even somewhat psychologically. Why was it that David had this kind of contrasting spirit in nature compared to the one that he had before toward Saul? Willing to forgive him, showing him mercy, had no no desire to seek revenge on Saul, but rather only goodness and kindness towards him. Well, the first thing that's mentioned here in this chapter is Samuel dies. Samuel dies. Samuel was a very important person to David. Samuel was the one who God called to anoint David, and David becomes the newly anointed king. But remember, his kingship is still in the works, if I could put it that way. Saul is still the public figure of the king, Of course, he's a failure, a failure miserably. David is up and coming. God has anointed him. The Spirit has left Saul. It's upon David. David is the true anointed one. So when Samuel dies, this obviously could have affected him internally. That he lost, so to speak, his best supporter. Because Samuel was the one that anointed him and saw the amazing transformation of the Spirit coming upon David, and David becomes now the newly anointed one. One that was, wasn't expected to be anointed because he was the youngest, and he was, so to speak, sort of just a sheep, uh, uh, a shepherd of the sheep, and no one would have suspected that he could possibly be the king in Israel. But he becomes one, and Samuel obviously obeyed the Lord and gives to to David the application that the Spirit had sent him to perform. So Samuel's death could have affected David's temperament. The other thing is obvious. You tell him that David has sent you. Has anyone ever come to you and said, you know, so-and-so told me, I've used different names, I'm kind of friendly with the district attorney, for instance, and he's told me when I was looking for a good pair of sneakers, he says, go down to Sneakerama and tell him that I sent you, and he gave me his name to use. So I thought maybe I would do that. Thinking that the name, expecting that the name to the hearer wouldn't be impressive, and that therefore a favor or a special courtesy might be offered to you. Well, this is what he was looking for. 
expecting it. It wasn't a big deal. It was He had abundance of food. He had plenty to share, but he was unwilling to do it. And David was irate. How is this possible that he could be so stingy? How could he, how could he look upon me in this fashion? Well, the Bible says, Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. David doesn't have pride in the chapter before, but in this chapter, it's off the charts. He handled Saul with grace, merciful and forgiving, but with Nabal, he's angry, he's wrathful, and he's malicious. The previous time he had asked for food, remember back in 1 Samuel 21, uh, when the high priest had the consecrated bread, David got what he was asking for. Though he did it deceptively, he got it. This time he's asking for it. Shouldn't be any questions asked. This is just everyday food. It's not sacred food. It's not priest's food. It's everybody's food. But he had no courtesy shown to him. The impact on David was such that he could not tolerate this and had to be vindictive about it. But would you expect that from a man of God, a man after God's own heart? Have you ever been surprised at yourself, maybe the way you have behaved? And said, man, how did I ever act like that? That's, that's not the new man in me. And sometimes we can get really down on ourselves, and we should. And we should be prepared, though, for things like that. We may run into a navel in our life. Somebody that is harsh, harsh, insensitive, that doesn't have a, a, any care for you. He's all for himself, and that's the kind of person that David walked into. You know, even someone says the most mature and experienced Christian acts foolishly at moments. He's left to himself during that time and has no reserve strength or wisdom to draw from himself. It's all stored in Christ. And when communion with the Lord is broken, as soon as we cease looking alone to Him for help, We are helpless. Was David dependent on the Lord? No. He makes no reference to the Lord whatsoever in this. We should have an attitude like Job. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job started off right. I think his friends touched a nerve with with Job that got him off kilter, and then he starts becoming bitter and angry, and he's wondering about the fairness of God. Someone else says that no one stands a moment longer than divine grace upholds him. So don't trust yourself, don't trust your past, even though you may have a good record as a godly Christian woman or man, you never know what a day's going to bring forth. Be on your God. Let him that thinks he stands Take heed lest he fall. This was a tremendous embarrassment in hindsight of how David reacted. And we'll read about Abigail, or at least reference her, who actually helped ameliorate the situation greatly by her spiritual and practical common sense. The next key character in this chapter, that's why I say in studying the life of David, it's important that we study the history of David's movements and people that he interacted with as well. And in this case, it's the two other key characters, Abigail and Nabal. 
What does the name Abigail mean? You know what it means? It means a father's joy or the joy of her father. That's a great name. It's a great name for a parent to give to their child. I don't think Abigail... Do we have an Abigail in here? Not today. Uh, we do have an Abigail, but she's not here today. It means a father's joy. And how does it describe her? It says in verse number 2, uh, is it 2 here? No, 3, she was an intelligent, wise, and a beautiful woman. Wise and intelligent and of a beautiful countenance. How could you go wrong? Ideal woman. An ideal woman to marry. The father's joy. She proved to be that. The way she acted, her character, the way she was. A true father's joy. And all of us who are parents, we certainly, when we see certain things in our children, we sort of have that internal joy of, of maybe pride is the wrong word, but joy of seeing the success, seeing the Christ-likeness, seeing the, the spirit of our, our child in those virtuous characteristics that cause us to swell up with gratitude. But when you think of who she was and who she marries, and we'll talk about Nabal in a second, but I have to introduce him here at this point. The word Nabal, the name Nabal means fool. A fool. Now the word fool is a strong, strong negative word. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And other passages throughout the Bible references people as fools that's a serious accusation. But he lived what his name was. He truly proved himself to be a fool. So, let's pause and ask the question then, if her name Abigail means the father's joy, and we know that it was a common practice in all of the Bible, and still should be today, that the one that wants to marry the, the daughter of the parent would go to the parent, the father particularly, and ask for the hand of the daughter. And I suppose that did happen. Nabal had gone to Abigail's father and asked if she, if he could have her hand in marriage. And yet, an intelligent and wise woman being yoked with a fool? Something's not right. How could the dad ever have let his daughter marry such a fool as Nabal, we have to raise that question. And it obviously was very evident, not just in the end of his life or in the middle of their marriage age, but rather it was evident even earlier than that. Well, Abigail has to intervene. She goes ahead of her husband. She doesn't tell her husband, by the way, because when she gets word that David and his men are coming after you, Nabal, they're coming with vengeance and they're going to destroy you and all of your men, all of your sheep shearers are going to be slain. He could have cared less. Abigail realized who this David was. Nabal's failure was he didn't recognize the name of David. When she comes, the first thing she does is she bows before David. What a difference of attitudes of Abigail's compared to Nabal's. Who is this man? I don't know who he is. Whereas she comes before him 
and pays reverence to him. She bows at his feet and says, Please forgive. This is verse 28. I know it wasn't in our reading, but it's a long chapter. You'll follow me here. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. Talking about her husband. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord, that is David, a sure house. What is that telling us? Abigail had faith in the promises of God. That what God was promising to David and to future Israel would be that he would have a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting. That's, that's David she's referring to. As Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, capital L, and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living and the care of the Lord your God. In the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out and so forth and so on. Verse 32, David said to Abigail, after she admires him and expresses her adoration of the promises given to David and what future was ahead for him. She recognized this about him. Then David says to her in verse 32, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Wow. David was grateful. What did she do? She intervened. She was a mediator. She halted him from his aggression to go towards her husband. She was admitting suddenly here that my husband's a fool. She describes him as such a one in verse, I believe it's verse uh, 17. He is such a worthless fool. No one can speak to him. He is bad-tempered and unfriendly. The LXSX, which is the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, which is the Greek. Uh, it describes him this way. He was a dogged man. Snappy and always snarling. It's not going to be your best friend for sure. You wouldn't want him in your neighborhood. You wouldn't want him in your family. You wouldn't even want to come around his presence. Wow. A dogged man. Snappy and always snarling. And ironically, this Nabal was a Calebite from Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah. This could very well have been a relative of David, a distant relative possibly, because Bethlehem was known as being a strong tribal community. And their history would go back to the tribe of Judah and Caleb was in that line and they were called Calebites. So Nabal was a Calebite. But his name means fool. How ironic. Bethlehem with the descendants of Caleb were collectively called Calebites. How does someone with such a good background like that of the tribe of Judah and the line of Caleb in the city of Bethlehem, how does he get to such a state as he is? Someone wrote it this way, a degenerate plant from so noble of a vine. How? Does that occur? A degenerate plant from so noble of a vine. It's ironic, isn't it, that sometimes people are brought up in real good homes and they turn out to be the worst, and people that are brought up in very bad, dysfunctional homes can sometimes end up to be the best. And I'm not trying to exonerate or condone having a dysfunctional home 
or also giving you uh, no hope for bringing up your child in the right way that the end would be justifying of your means. I have a Jeopardy question for you. Anybody watch Jeopardy? I'm hooked on it lately for some reason. Uh, if you're watching it, you know what I, why I am. It's, it's a pretty cool program, you must admit. Well, anyway, I have a Jeopardy question for you. Who was called the most wicked man in the world in the early 1900s? That was who? Do you know that? I don't want to say amen, but you're 100% right, brother. It was it. Alistair Crowley. You might not know who Alistair Crowley is, but some of you old timers that used to be Beatles fans had the album cover, Lonely Hot Club Band. Remember that? There were like 60 some odd people on there. Bob Dylan and and Ed Sullivan and, and Alistair Crowley was there. And Anton LaVey was there. Alistair Crowley... It says of him that he laid the groundwork for Wicca, paganism, and Satanism. He was the predecessor of all of that. And you know what's ironic about this all? That he grew up in the home of a godly man named Thomas Crowley, who was a popular preacher in Ireland among the Plymouth Brethren. When I heard that, I was shocked. He was an occultist. He went in the exact, exact opposite direction. Nabal may have had a wonderful upbringing, goes in the opposite direction. He doesn't know who David is. Like they said of Jesus, is this, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this the son of Mary, of Joseph? He's just an ordinary guy. They played him down. Beware of people who don't know Jesus. Beware of them. And, and what I don't mean is I don't mean that I want to promote isolationism. As we heard yesterday in our great men's breakfast, we had a, a 74 odd men uh, registered for the breakfast. It was a terrific revival in some ways. And it was great. And one of the things that the brother said that isolationism is the height of arrogance. Isolation is the height of arrogance. You want to isolate yourself? You're arrogant. You're selfish. You're self-willed. You're self-confident. You can't do it alone. Who sang the song, No One's an Island? I am a rock. I am an island. Who was that? Peter, Paul, and Mary? I don't remember. But whatever it was, it's a fact. It's a truth. If you think you can be a rock and be on an island, you're wrong. You can't be. We need to be connected. And praise God, we're connected to Christ our head who unites us to one another in one body. I love the family of God. Brother, sister, if you name the name of the Lord and Jesus is your Savior like these baptizing candidates, we are one in Christ. We are one with one another. What a communion we have as a family of God. But watch out for those that don't know Jesus. It says of Nabal that he answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters, and shall I take my food and give it to these men? In closing, and I do want to make it a little shorter today than usual, I I think I have something really important to say. It's impacted me, and I think it will impact you, and I think it relates to the way in which Abigail and Nabal are. There's such a contrast. 
And maybe you're in a home, maybe you're married, and there's a contrast between you and your wife, spiritually particularly. But maybe some other characteristics, or you and a family member, or you and a neighbor, or you and a a friend, or whatever. There, There could be two ways of classifying people. One way could be to classify a person as a gracer, the other one being an abuser. And I think that Abigail falls into the category of a gracer and Nabal falls into the category of an abuser. Now that name is used commonly in the last generation, I guess you could say. Verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and so on. That word abuse. But abuse has a wider uh, connotation than maybe some of the ways that we restrict it to. And let me give you some of the definitions that I think can help us to ask ourselves, am I an abuser? And I even say that to believers because there may be things about us in our past that are still with us in the present. The Bible says, put off the old man and put on the new man. The old man versus the new man. We should want to walk in the new man and not in the old man. So let's think of the old man as the abuser, the new man as the gracer. People that don't know grace are going to in some ways be falling into the definitions of what an abuser would be. But let me read a few of these words here. An abuser doesn't have, doesn't love in the biblical self-sacrificing sense. While they may claim to love their style of relationship, It entails toxic levels of things like manipulation, control, obsession, addiction, deceit, guilt, tripping, narcissism, pride, and self-centeredness. They may not incorporate all those negatives, but they'll pick a few vices and hone them into an art form. Whereas a gracer will love others. More than their sin and their pride, they'll be willing to make sacrifices for others instead of constantly demanding others make sacrifices for them. They'll actively try to maintain positive relationships and avoid hurting others' feelings. They won't dictate the aspirations and they won't dictate the aspirations and goals of others, but encourage their God-given talents and healthy desires, influencing them in positive ways. An abuser will have difficulty taking joy in things that don't feed their needs. And this is Nabal. Don't bother me. I'm busy with, with sheep shearing here. We have food enough for ourselves. We're, not, we're, not, we're stingy. We're not going to give it out to anybody. It's ours. It's mine. That's Nabal. He's an abuser. The, an abuser will be insatiable, discontent, and endlessly longing for attainable things. The more you try to please them, the higher they'll raise the bar. Your love will never be enough. Not due to any fault of your own, but because they're they're in an emotional black hole and always sucking but never filled. Some of you may have been abused at some time. This type of stuff has a lot of practical application for you and can be extremely helpful. A gracer, on the other hand, will take joy in your accomplishments and talents. Your happiness will influence their happiness. They'll make you a priority and set aside time to be with you. Maintaining and building your relationship with, will, your relationship will bring them joy and contentment. 
Man, these sounds like great Christian qualities. This is the life of the Spirit, like we're talking about downstairs. This is what should mock us. This, these kinds of adjectives. Abusers often have little to no patience or empathy. Doing something outside their interest for the benefit of others is not their forte. They may be extremely patient when it comes to their own hobbies, but ask them to sit down and plod through something they don't enjoy, you'll likely meet resistance. Many abusers are also bigots. They have special place in their hearts for people of their choice. But they are really bitter, unsympathetic, impatient, and intolerant. A gracer, on the other hand, may find your hobby boring, but they'll try it only to spend time with you. They may even have some bigotry, but they'll come to recognize that the bias, that the bias is wrong and work against it. They'll forgive you for making mistakes and apologize for their own. They'll discipline their children out of love and not anger. Help their spouse with projects and chores and be capable of self-control. Selfishness could be said to be the hallmark of an abuser. Uh, they befriend people they think they can use. They puff themselves up at the expense of others. I've seen abusers seek their own position in churches and schools, etc., not because they love teaching, but because they enjoy having authority and undeserved trust. An abuser will leverage people. This is navel, brothers and sisters. This is the navel that could be in us, in you, and in my character. They leverage people who love them as a means to an end, to boost their ego, to feed their deviant lifestyle, pad their wallet, or satiate their sexual desires. An abusive parent may drown their child in responsibilities to make them feel inadequate, or neglect to teach them any responsibility to make them feel inept. When they seem like they're being kind, an ulterior motive is almost always at play. A grace of, by contrast, is willing to serve. They enjoy caring for others and desire to take their marriage to a deeper level. They consult with their spouse on big decisions, making them feel con considered and respected. They won't withhold consensual sex with their spouse in order to shame or manipulate them. But they also won't insist on intimacy that their partner isn't comfortable with. They desire their marriage to be mutually fulfilling and not emotionally lopsided. There's more to read, but I think you got the point. That's a navel. He's an abuser. Abigail, on the other hand, is a gracer. She's looking for opportunity to minister to David, to sympathize with him, to understand the foolishness of her husband and try to palliate David's stirred up spirit of anger that's about to be executed upon her master, her husband, if you will. These are some of the lessons I think we can learn from the Old Testament. A good man like a David who wanted to cut the coat rather than the throat in the chapter before now is willing to cut the throat rather than the cloak. You get the point? There's a switch. All of a sudden, the switch seems to just change over. Like, bingo. Where did, where did David of chapter 24 go when we're in the 25th chapter? Where did we go sometimes? Where did we go wrong? Where did we get off the track? Which we could very easily do that. Somebody could be a neighbor in your life that could 
just turn you around. Maybe a neighbor could be a church body or a, 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 a an authoritative church group that has been very self-centered and very insensitive to the people that they supposedly minister to and shepherd. That can create a 1 Samuel 25 spirit where there's a desire to just repel it. You're against it. You don't feel any commonality with them anymore. These are important things, I think, as we all live delicate lives. And we need to be careful, and time's running out, we need to be careful that we have be on a steady course. And when the things come and kind of rock our boat, we've got to remember how it can be settled, how it can be stabilized, so that we're not capsized by the wind or the wave or some neighbor in our life that could offset us. It's so difficult, isn't it, to compartmentalize things that interfere with our peace. And everybody wants that. I want to be happy. I want to be joyous. I want things to go well. I want to be positive. I want to be upbeat. And then all of a sudden, bingo, something just smacks down on me. The roof just caves in. And now what? All of that love for the Lord, all of that scriptures that I've read and memorized and learned in church and from others, where does that go? Out the window. David had a temporary falling from grace, if I can put it that way. Not out of grace, but from it for a moment. And so we need to be in our God. So from David, we can learn something about his flaw and hopefully not lose the focus of being a man or woman after God's own heart. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank You for the lessons we learned from Your book, from the Word of God, inspired by You, Lord, gifting men to be able to write as the Holy Spirit led them along so we can be instructed in the ways of Yourself, Lord, more perfectly. Father, if anyone here doesn't know Jesus, they don't have life, We pray, Lord, that Your Spirit would stir them up, that they would look to You, Lord, that they would cry out for mercy and salvation, that they would bow their knee to the true anointed and final King of Kings, Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life. Bless them, O God, we pray in this way. And help us, Lord, ourselves to examine ourselves. Am I an abuser or am I a gracer? What kind of a person am I? And I can only say, I want to be... Christ in me, the hope of glory person. Help us, O Lord, to lean heavily on You and lean in the opposite direction from ourselves. May Your Word be blessed to each and every one of us today. Guide us and direct us for the remainder of the day. Bless the baptism to follow and may the three be greatly encouraged and blessed and all of us rejoice with them as well as we give You praise in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.